Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to uh, another episode of No Holds Barred. Um, today I'm joined on the line by public historian Greg Jenner. Is that right? Yep. Pu- public historian. That's it. Um, pubic historian, which is a typo that happens a lot on autocorrect. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different uh, thing, pubic historian. <laughs> I'm sure they exist. Um, yeah, Greg's, uh, you know, he's been involved in the Horrible Histories books, you've written for GQ, you've been on Rich and Herring. Uh, podcast at, at some point, um, BBC Radio Four. You, actually, the other day I was eating breakfast and um, I was listening to, to Radio Four, and a, a, there was a segment about Mary Queen of Scots, who I didn't, I kind of was aware about in the peripheries of of, of my mind that that this person existed, but didn't know much about her. Um, and yeah, you're, you you came on the radio, and I didn't know it was you at the time, but I, obviously I was aware of you through the Spurs stuff, and you was, you've been on that extra inch and stuff. Um, but the the you talked about the rise and fall of Mary Queen of Scots, and I was just I was kind of fascinated by it. And then there was this quiz at the end, and then it said presented by Greg Jenner, I think. And uh, I was like, oh, I've got I've got to make content with Greg because um, history is something that I've always been kind I've been interested in it, but never kind of understood the structure of it and how it how it why it's important. And um, and I just thought it would be great to talk to you because you've man- always managed to talk about history in a way that's accessible to the everyman you know it, it isn't impenetrable like it's not world at war which is 35 hours of <laughs> Laurence Olivier uh sort of narrating this in- incredible story about world war Two. it's 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 something more um uh contained right and easier to understand is that your approach yeah it's um I mean, I try and do a bit of everything, but yeah, I mean, my job as a public historian, which is a phrase people listening won't know, um, mm. but it, it's um, basically I'm a middleman between academic historians who work in universities who are, you know, very, very brainy, brilliant professors who do really, really detailed, incredibly forensic scholarship. Uh, and then obviously you've got the general public and the public historian's role is to be the bridge between those two. And what makes me a bit different to some of my colleagues is that I primarily work in humour and comedy. I've always loved comedy. I've always been really into it. And I'm uh, what's known as funny for a historian in that uh, <laughs> I play football with a lot of um, a lot of comedians and I hang out with lots of comedians. And they're always telling me that I'm 
uh, not as funny as them, which is true. So um, <laughs> I'm not funny enough to be a professional funny person, but I'm hilarious compared to most historians. Right. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, what, what I try and do is obviously I'm trying to use humour and entertainment and pop culture references and stuff to make history feel accessible to people who, who just dropped it at school when they were 14 or even earlier. There are millions of people out there for whom history is intimidating, it's scary, it's vast it's boring it's dull it's irrelevant they look at it and go well where do i start or why should i care and i get it because it's enormous it's literally everything that's ever happened Uh, and there have been 108 billion people since the dawn of our species so you know how do you tell that story so much of what i do is try to take history as this huge thing and turn it into these smaller things that are accessible and you can engage with them by finding funny um, memorable ways to get into those stories so on Horrible Histories the TV show I make um, you know I've made that for 12 years it's for kids obviously you know we do we do comedy sketches and we do songs so you know songs are really memorable comedy sketches are two minutes long and really silly and make you laugh so you're learning by stealth you know you're learning all this information um, it's incredibly hard work making that show because we have massively high standards on all the history that goes into it and I have a team of historians who work with me we're the most qualified TV show probably out of any tv show in the uk like we have a team of nine historians we've got people with phds everyone's got a master's degree minimum and it's a kid's show so we are really really you know hot on our our facts but we're making it funny and accessible so that seven-year-olds or 70-year-olds can enjoy it and can learn and i take that approach to my podcasts on the bbc so the one that you heard flav was um was uh, homeschool history which is a new thing i've been doing for kids uh, during the lockdown, obviously, kids were struggling not having schools, so BBC asked us to do an emergency podcast, and it's just 15 minutes of me uh, doing funny, a funny history lesson with comedy sound effects over the top. Um, but we co-write that with expert historians, and I've also got two co-writers, Emma and Gabby, who are really funny, and they, they help me write the, the script, so there's four of us on every episode. And um, and the other show I do is, do is called You're Dead to Me, and that's a... Um, that's been a big success. It's been amazing, actually. We've had phenomenal feedback on it, and it's the second biggest podcast on the BBC, which is phenomenal. We never saw that coming. And that's where I sit down with an expert historian and a top comedian, and we talk for 45 minutes about a different historical subject. And it's really funny, and it's really surprising, but what's amazing about it is you come away at the end learning genuine university-level stuff about subjects you've never even thought about, or maybe subjects you thought you knew, but you didn't know. And yet, the whole time because the comedians are there to represent the audience to ask the questions that you want to ask and also to make sure that we're not getting too you know pretentious or stuck you know on the on the jargon they're there to make sure that the 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 listener has a great time so by the end of that episode you've essentially listened to a university lecturer explain the most complicated bits of their subject but you had a chuckle as well so i'm really proud of that because it's it's a way of making the really really complex exciting, uh, you know, edgy history stuff that's been done in universities, accessible to absolutely everyone. Mm. And for me, taking history seriously means laughing about it, which some people find weird because they're like, well, no, if history's serious, you should be serious. But I take the opposite approach. I think history is so important. It's so serious. We've got to understand it. The best way to share that is to make people have a great time. What I was going to ask about that, Greg, is, is do you... 
Is there a level of scorn that gets thrown your way by traditional historians who are, do take themselves very seriously and history very seriously? Or do they appreciate what you're doing in, in, in um, making this more accessible to more people, including children? I'm really lucky, I think, in that I came into it at just the right time. So um, uh, I don't know how old you are, Flav. You're probably roughly the same age. 38, yeah, I'm 37. So we're the same age. So you probably remember 20 years ago, Simon Sharma did the first kind of history of Britain on the BBC. Yes. Big, big, like massive TV series and there were big books. He got a huge amount of crap from from other historians. In what respect? They were saying, what are you doing? You're dumbing down. You're on the telly. You're a professor. You should be teaching in the universities. Why? What are you doing? And oh, um, wow. and this was, you know, twenty years ago in our lifetime, and um, that was the kind of prevailing wind at the time. But since then, things have have changed. I've been doing horrible history since two thousand and eight, so twelve years. And um, I wrote my master's thesis when I was twenty two on uh, movies about uh, King Arthur, including Monty Python. So I wrote my MA thesis on Monty Python. And at the time, people were like, what on earth are you playing at? And now I get invited back and I teach at that university. <laughs> so uh, funnily enough, I've been welcomed back in places where I initially people were like, really? That's what you're going to do with your academic career? So, so it was it like the crest. It felt like you, you were at the crest of the technological wave where people's yeah, attitudes yeah. were changing. And, and perhaps right. it wasn't yeah. secular anymore. And more people were able to listen to what you had to say and your team had to say. A hundred percent. I think in some ways, I mean, I, I feel like I'm very lucky in that I arrived just when people were starting to open up to it. And obviously, without wishing to blow my own trumpet, I think the fact that I got to work on Horrible Histories, which was a show for kids and people are much more forgiving of kids stuff. So by making Horrible Histories fun and accessible, mums and dads were watching it and they were going, this is really good. This is funny, but I'm, I'm learning some stuff. And so I think people were like, this approach actually works. So from that, I could then build. And I went from that to then writing a book. And then from that, I became a podcaster. And then obviously now I am a broadcaster and a podcaster and write books and teaching universities a bit. And it's my sort of whole career is about being a bit funny and lively, but also doing the research, doing, you know, working really hard to make sure everything I'm saying is factually accurate. Just in case um, people don't know just how massive uh, Horrible Histories is, like, there, there isn't a child, I don't think, alive that isn't at least aware of it, the, whether it be the books or the TV programme. Yeah. And certainly not, um, you know, uh, parents who have had children in, 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 in the last 10, 15 years would, have, would 100% be It's almost a part of our culture in terms of thinking about history and teaching children immediately people will go to horrible histories and i'm sure we've got many uh, people from america and, and, and across the globe who listen to this who will probably i'm sure it's been syndicated across across the globe as well it has a bit it's really interesting so it's sold 23 million copies as the books so the books are phenomenal bestsellers like they are a, a huge thing and then we've made the tv show for uh 12 years and um and we've won lots and lots of i think we've won 50 awards internationally which is incredible you know i've never in my career will ever do anything as successful or impactful as horrible histories you know i could live to 100 and i'll never ever match the kind of stuff i was doing at 25 which is slightly depressing but um <laughs> it's really lovely you know and, and the reason that show is so good is because i was a small cog in a massive team of brilliant people mm. um but yeah, it's, you know, when it was on like series two, series three, 60% of all children in the UK were watching it. Yeah, which was incredible. Incredible. And, and yeah, we made a movie a couple of years ago, which, you know, was fun. And so 
yeah, the brand recognition is is massive, and it, it's very it's very exciting and I feel very proud to be part of that story I'm a small part of that story you know the books existed for years before me um, and I get to work on a, a small part of it but it's really really lovely and it's it's helped me obviously to to then build on that with my career and say to people well look you know I can do this with grown-ups as well I can do adult equivalents that are a bit more highbrow and a bit more nuanced but you're still having a laugh and um, and I think the horrible histories model was uh, something that I could show to people and say look you can learn by laughing and the two things are not opposites yes of course absolutely um we're going to come on to your book the most recent book dead famous uh shortly because i've got a question about braveheart coming um <laughs> yeah. uh but uh but before that i just want, i want to talk a little bit more generally because it, it is fascinating but what it, it, this may seem like an obvious question but what is history to you in if you can answer that within a minute or two minutes what 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 is history <laughs> what is history is the name of a very famous book actually um yeah it is uh and there's a brand new book out called why study history by marcus collins and peter stearns which is is pretty good as well on on just you know what's it for um history is not what people think it is so people confuse history with the past and the past is what happened and history is the stories we tell about the past so history is always changing the past doesn't change the past is what happened and you can't change it unless you get in a time machine but history is how historians and how modern people retell those stories and reinterpret those stories. And that means that history is always being updated and rewritten with new perspectives in mind, new biases, new cultural interests, things that we suddenly care about now that we didn't care about before. We go back and we rewrite history. So when people say, oh, you're rewriting history, it's like, yeah, of course we are. That's literally what history is. History comes from the Greek word meaning story. Historia, the, the wise sayings of, of wise men. Mm. Um, and in French, histoire means story. So history is an academic and intellectual exercise when we're trying to understand what happened in the past, but it's always shaped by what we care about now in the present. That's a brilliantly concise answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> you gave me I, a minute. I tried. <laughs> mate, no, you did wonderfully because I, I desperately wanted to ask you a question. How, how much responsibility do historians have then because i one of the first books that blew my head back was 1984 mm. and uh i'm gonna butcher this now but it's he who controls the future con- no he can who controls the past controls the future he controls the future controls the past uh within that obviously there's politicians and and, and in certain governments and uh states around the world they will manipulate yeah. realities so how, how much responsibility is is there on historians to get it right as much as possible? This is such a fundamental question. So we're living in an era where we've got, uh, I mean, certainly in America, you've got Trump, uh, who's who just lies every day. You know, he's extraordinary, the, the, the absolute garbage that comes out of his mouth. Um, and even in the UK, of course, we also have an awful lot of, of political propaganda that comes out of people's mouths that you kind of go, well, that's not true. Um it's a very difficult thing. Being a historian is challenging. It's really difficult. You don't have all the evidence you wish you had. But yeah, historians are fundamentally, the good historians, the proper historians, are people who go where the evidence is. So you you are looking for things in the past sometimes. You know, you might be interested in certain stories yourself. So it might well be that if you were a person of a certain cultural background or you have a certain sexuality or a certain fascination, you might want to look for your own story in the past and see if it's there. Totally understand that. But what historians do 
is that we go looking for the evidence and the evidence tells us what to think. When it gets corrupted is when people go looking in the past to prove what they already think. And that is the danger of when politicians and when populists and when propaganda merchants use history as a weapon. And it's always been used. And your Orwell quote is a very important one. And it's a line from a Rage Against Machine song as well. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting challenge. And being a historian at the moment has been pretty tough, to be honest, because we're seeing a real decline in the quality of public discourse and, and debate sometimes and certainly coming out of america coming out of brazil you've got bolsonaro you've got some pretty nasty people making stuff up and and using it to to target vulnerable groups to go after people who you know don't have power and privilege in society so sometimes historians aren't just people who tell you you know what's going on in the past often we're being called in to try and um, improve the quality of discussion happening in the present. So it is a big responsibility. There's a huge community of historians on Twitter. If you want to, if you ever have a historical question and you'd really want to know and you're thinking, where do I look for that? There's a brilliant community of historians on Twitter. They used to hashtag Twitterstorian and uh, you can pretty much get any, any question answered. There'll always be someone on there willing to give you an answer because historians love sharing their knowledge and they know how important it is that people... Uh, can get good quality answers so if there's ever anything you're thinking oh, I wish I knew this try Twitter, try finding a historian and I bet you, you get a good answer Okay, that's great um, the, 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 another question that, that came to mind just then was then that it must be easier talking about ancient history or history from <laughs> perhaps before the Second World War, before propaganda becomes such a, a massive thing or, or a massive weapon that the facts are kind of there in the past, aren't they? They're, they're, they're steadfast because no one's really interested in changing them or perhaps those that are interested in changing them are, are small in comparison to what we have in the modern day where history is being made constantly every minute, every day because of the advent of technology that it's it's really what you choose to believe and what you choose to remember what which becomes correct to you and therefore there is no correct, there is just... A, 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 a plethora of opinion and, and right. where do you find where do you find <laughs> where do you find what's correct and what is correct in, in, in terms of a historian how, how is today <laughs> sorry I'm asking you millions of questions but I guess the overarching thing is how is history recorded now how is it recorded now okay right so you've, you've thrown some really important really fascinating questions there and they are the big questions the ones that we've we struggle with for, for centuries First thing to say is people have always lied and people have always written down stuff that they want to be written down and they've always edited stuff out that they don't want to be known about. So no matter where you're looking in history, you're always going to find sources are unreliable. Ancient Rome, ancient Greece, people like Tacitus, Suetonius, Herodotus, we know that they have certain biases. Sometimes they're better than others. Sometimes you're going to go, well, this is the only source we've got, so we've got to use it. Mm. But they will often be... Uh, using their writing, even if it's 2,300 years ago, they're writing about an emperor that they don't like, they are going to use that source to attack the emperor. So you have to be aware there's always going to be structural biases within uh, evidence. And 
what we also have with history is that you often don't get the representation of ordinary people in the past. You know, women often get left out of those stories. People of colour get left out of those stories. People who are LGBTQ get left out of those stories because they didn't have power and privilege in society. So we quite often we get certain stories handed down to us, but they tend to be the stories of, of men with power and influence. Um and I'm a social historian. I'm really interested in daily life and ordinary people's stories. And I'm in, interested in, you know, what, what life was like, you know, for for the working man, the working woman, for, for kids. So I'm always looking for those sorts of things. And those are sometimes harder to come by. So, you know, we don't have census data earlier than the 1840s. We don't have diaries sometimes because people couldn't read and write. So there's all other sort of problems that you get with history and as a former medievalist you know if you get back to the 8th century you've got very few sources full stop so then you're relying on archaeology to to bolster that up you then get into the 20th century and the 21st century and as you say you've got a very different sort of system where you've got universal education you've got extraordinary resources there's the mass observation project that went on in the 1940s and, and still runs i think and it you know tells us about the lives of ordinary people during the war and now we have Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and future historians are going to be have they'll have a data set of billions and billions and billions of pieces of information. And the challenge will be, well, how do you even get a story out of that? How do you find some sort of trend or some sort of understanding of what happened in 2016 or 2019 or whatever from the eight billion tweets that were sent that month? You know, that's the challenge. So... What, would it be, would it be like algorithms and and AI mm, that will yeah. help you achieve that? Yeah, yeah, and it's it's called big history, and um, and absolutely, there, there already there are computer. You know, it's an interesting source of tension actually, because some historians are a little bit sniffy about the the coming of of computing, uh, because sometimes, quite often, what you get is people in tech turn up and kind of go, right, we've solved this, we've done it with a computer, and they've often completely forgotten half of the stuff that historians do, and they end up balling it up so historians are often a bit cynical but the truth is is that yeah we are now entering an age of universal recording where absolutely everything we do is going to be recorded somewhere so the first question is okay how do you preserve it so it doesn't get lost and deleted Uh, because you know the internet we're losing files off the internet all the time Um, so how do you preserve those how do you preserve the internet how do you preserve Game Boys and mobile phones? You know, like there's, there are museums out there that are starting to collect like iPhone 3s because mm. they're like, this is important. We've got to make sure that future generations understand what an iPhone 3 looks like, which is bizarre because, of course, we're all just upgrading our phones and, and, you know, not giving a damn. But that is how museum and archivist collectors work. They, they look at things and go, that is important. It represents what people did. We've got to keep them. So from a digital point of view, the challenge now is... How do you preserve it? How do you archive it? And then the future challenge will be, how do you make sense of it? And yeah, there's a lot of work going on now with what's called digital history and big history. Scholars starting to think about this stuff, not even starting to think about it. They've been doing it for 20 years. But, you know, really now you've got fantastic computing power, the Google Cloud, the Google kind of the AI that you can run. Um, It'll be really interesting. But the truth is, is that being a historian has always been challenging. So sometimes you don't have enough sources, sometimes you have too many sources, but the problem will always be the same, is how do we trust this? How do we know it's accurate? How do we select it? How do we infer what's going on in this? How do we read it? You know, have we missed vital clues here? Do we get these these references? You know, is someone making a... You know, meme history is going to be amazing in 20, <laughs> 30 years' time. 
people are going to look back at memes that we all kind of see on Twitter and kind of, and they're going to be baffled as to what that meme meant. Yeah. Because they're going to look at it and go, what? What? What's that about? And of course, <laughs> we all get the joke because it's, you know, at the moment recording this today and Dominic Cummings is in the news and uh, everyone's doing jokes about, you know, going to Specsavers and yeah. driving 250 miles. In 10 years time, is that joke going to work? No. I don't know. Well, 50 pro- years time, is that going to even, what does Specsavers even mean in 50 years time? It may, so these are the challenges. Yeah. Yeah, and it may it may turn into something that isn't even doesn't even is not relevant to this current thing. Like it might become a yeah. a, a reference or, or a cliche that people use in the future that has no people don't they, they use the terminology but they don't know the the etymology of it. And yeah, um, yeah. yeah so it, that, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's fan, f- fascinating, and I wonder how uh, from from my perspective on when I look at Twitter and I, I'm really I struggle uh, with I struggle with social media generally. Um, I'm aware of how important it is to me, you know, in terms of my business and making money and stuff. But sure. But but as a general piece of, 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 of as a window into to the way the nation feels, I find it uh, very draining. So I try not to, to look too much. But my do my observation on it is that that if, if say, Twitter is going to be used as a basis for capturing this moment in history and future moments in history, that I wonder if it isn't actually a true reflection of how a lot of people feel mm. and what you actually 100%. get is very angry left-wing yeah. people and very angry right-wing people clashing mm-hmm. constantly, belittling each other. And somewhere in the middle is where society is, I guess. And that, That's a really interesting point. It's a really interesting point. I think Twitter is a self, what's called a self-selecting microcosm. So the people who choose to go on Twitter are a certain type of people. And I love Twitter. I'm obsessed with it. I'm on there all the time. I, I you know... I find Twitter to be the most brilliant place and I'm forever on there tweeting, doing stupid tweets and and jokes, whatever. But it's undoubtedly, it's a microcosm that doesn't reflect um, wider mood. And and we saw that in recent elections where everyone on Twitter was like, the Labour Labour Party going to win. And then, you know, big win for for Boris Johnson. So there's definitely that. But that's the nature of history. That's what you get with any historical source, really, is you're going to get certain biases where the person collecting that information or the person writing down something they looked at something and thought well i'm not gonna put that in because i don't think that's important and so scroll forward 400 years and we don't get the thing that they've they've ignored because they didn't think it was important so we don't get it and some stuff just won't survive so i mean famously um do you know the bayer tapestry from 1066 Uh, i'm aware of it from gcse history okay so that very nearly was destroyed Wow. Um, it was used as a wagon covering in the French Revolution. So uh, someone saw this 75-metre you know, artwork, hand-embroidered by nuns. It was about 800 years old at the time. They looked at it and went, yeah, that would be quite handy to cover my wagons. <laughs> so one of the sort of most priceless pieces of medieval art was basically repurposed into a kind of canvas uh, tarpaulin. And that happens all the time. So, I know, imagine it's quite got... a stunning piece of, uh, of uh, uh, what that must have looked like a stunning wagon once finished. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You'd pimp your cart in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Did, was it was it was it horrendously damaged? And it's been restored since. There have been restoration work on it, but no, amazingly, we have almost all of it. What we don't have is the last section of it. What so was on it? Then? We don't. We don't have William the Conqueror being um, crowned. At the end of it, that bit's missing. Sorry, to explain just briefly, what what, what is it? What what does it does it show a period, a chronological period of history? 
yeah so the 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 bio tapestry is a think of it like um almost like a comic book it shows the events of 1066 um and the norman conquest and it starts with um the king on the throne who at the time is called edward the confessor he dies harold godwinson takes the english throne but the tapestry shows that he's sworn an oath on a holy relic that he would give the throne to william duke of normandy uh he doesn't do that he takes the throne and william invades and so this tapestry is about 75 minutes uh, sorry 75 meters long it's not actually a tapestry it's an embroidery so the name's wrong um and it essentially is a sort of visual comic book explaining what happened that year wow. and it was probably made in about just after the battle probably made in kent by nuns at canterbury we think and it's uh slightly pro-norman but it's got kind of in jokes in there and it's a fascinating piece of, of medieval artwork but it very nearly didn't survive where, so, can, where can you see that oh well it's in bayeux in in france so you can obviously go see the real thing there but there's a re, um, reproduction in reading that was um, sewn in Reading, which is oddly enough. Yeah. Uh, and you can also see it online as well. You know, people have, t- have taken photographs of it. It's a it's a classic piece of um, of art. It's the famous thing with the arrow in the eye. You know, the story of Harold with the arrow in the eye. Y- yes. And that image of him. That's from the Bio Tapestry. Uh-huh. Um, that, that was fun- the t- 1066. 1066. And funny enough, actually, I've just this morning recorded uh, my next children's podcast, Homeschool History, is on 1066. So actually, if you want well, a 15-minute introduction, you can have a listen to that. You say children's, you know, a children's podcast, but it's not. It's I enjoyed it. I'm 38. I got a lot from it. So. <laughs> if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Where should go? Listen. All right, back to norm, modern times then, and and then yeah. and then in, a little bit into history as well. We're obviously in this period of of a pandemic, and pandemics haven't been rare in history, have they? They've happened no, consistently. Uh, yeah, I mean, we can go way. You can go way, way back. You can go back to the Athenian plague uh, of two thousand four hundred years ago. You've got the Justinian plague in the five hundred, so that's about fifteen hundred years ago. You've got obviously the Black Death, um, the plague of sixteen sixties. Uh, it was very common in Italy in the sixteen thirties and forties, um, and then Spanish flu nineteen nineteen. You know, pandemics happen regularly. Yes, um, and hopefully not too regularly. Maybe one in a lifetime might do, but. Who knows with the yeah. way, way, way the world's working now. But it is, you, you've often heard, or I've often heard, a comparison between uh, COVID-19 or the coronavirus to, to, to the Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I'm sure the, that there isn't. I'd like you to explain perhaps the differences if you can. But, 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 but from someone who's just, you know, listening to the news, the, the news podcast once a day or whatever it might be, that's my take home currently because I haven't chosen to find out more. Is that correct? Are they comparable? Why, why are these references being made? They're not really comparable and there's several reasons why. So from a purely from a kind of virology point of view, the Spanish flu is pretty different. Um, it targeted healthy young men. Um, and so the, the sort of the, the horrific thing about it is that you just had the First World War that had killed millions of people and then the survivors got home from the war and then so many of them having survived the war caught spanish flu and died um and it's called a cyanovirus i think it turns it turns you sort of bluish you go kind of blue color um and it was very 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 virulent and very nasty and killed tens of millions i mean i don't think we've got exact numbers but incredibly lethal um and so was just utterly devastating to the economy, to populations, to people's mental health and well-being, to entire communities, you know, bear in mind that people had already lost so much with the war. So it was, it doesn't really compare. You know, I think what we have to look at with uh, coronavirus, with COVID-19, is that we have a really, really contagious um, issue here. We've got something which the RO value is very, very high. It spreads really easily, but it's not nearly as lethal. Um, and obviously our healthcare system is much more advanced. We've got better medicines and we can also, of course, shut down. Well, we've shut down the entire economy, the entire nation, the entire world, really. Uh, and then the other thing we've got is communication. So you and I are chatting right now over Skype. Um, I've been sending emails this morning. I've been making a Radio 4 programme from my house. That is obviously something we just don't have 20 years ago. So Wi-Fi and Skype and Zoom and all that also gives us a totally different window into it so there are ways you can look at pandemics in history and you can find commonalities so if you look in the 1630s in italy entire towns would shut down they'd go into lockdown like we've done and they would try and have church services from inside their house and they would try and entertain the kids from inside the house and they would try and get food delivered to the house and some people would sneak out and the police would catch them so there are definitely similarities but we're dealing with a different disease with a much less um i mean much less horrific death rate it's very serious obviously we have to be really careful but um, spanish flu the black death um sweating sickness in the 16th century smallpox in you know central and southern america these diseases were way more lethal 
if you got them. You know, you had like a 50-50 chance if you got them back then. So um, we are not dealing with the same kind of disease. We're living in a different kind of world. Healthcare is better. And we are a much more sort of carefully connected community thanks to technology and so on. So, you know, I'm hoping that's good news. And I'm, I'm trying to cheer you up here by saying, actually... Don't worry, we haven't got to look forward to, or not look forward to, expect those kind of horrific um, experiences. We are obviously in a tough time. It's really, really awful. I'm so sorry to anyone who's who's lost family members because that's the worst. But we hopefully will never have to contend with that level of of pandemic. Um, And if we do, then, you know, we'll have to just get really, really, really good at hiding and locking down and hope that the doctors can come up with cures so yeah i mean i think the the the, the one one of the few positive things i guess there will be many positive things in reflection history will will, will show that, that perhaps society changed on as a reaction to what this current pandemic has put us through and mm. and perhaps a more um uh a more understanding and caring society will form you hope um, but also so. that technologies will be produced. Uh, people will be more inclined to, to be working remotely, that the way we work will change, that the obsession about a nine-to-five job where you get up at seven, you get in your car, you go to the office, and you get home at seven will change. Because, I, I mean, I know we're going off topic a little bit, but I think it's a, a massively damaging um, working life. Mm-hmm. And that the people will be much more healthier if they if they're, they're able to move more freely when and decide how how they want to work and i i really do i i found that from leaving my job in in november 18 my 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 office job to to have the freedom to create and 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 build has done absolute wonders for my men, mental health it really yeah. really has i hope that, that 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 comes a reality for more people after all of this yeah absolutely i mean i um spent 10 years working in london commuting home and i was my commute was three hours a day wow and uh i had a breakdown at 29 i just like couldn't do it anymore i'm not surprised Absolutely. yeah i was so so ill so, and, and, uh, and you're not allowed exhausting. you're not allowed to feel it i think I, I, certainly you're working like if you're not if you're impacted by your work in life it's almost like for so long in in working culture it's put up or shut up or if you if you explain then you're you might not be overtly um punished but you probably would be denied opportunities where someone who hasn't moaned about their situation um is given so i don't know i just i it's yeah work in life can be can be quite stressful and, and I, I, 100%. I, yeah, yeah and it's hopefully a good thing anyway um uh right so yeah we're going to come on to your book a little bit but before before we do but, but your book dead famous is about celebrity through through the ages right celebrities been yeah. always been an, an important thing and and celebrity and history are kind of intertwined, aren't they? And and I know this because the best film ever that was created about a historical event and a character within history is, of course, Braveheart. You know, you go freedom, and then they chop his body up, and he has he, he makes love to a pretty woman in the forest, and he's got a great accent. It's almost perfect, like Scottish accent. And then it's just brilliant, isn't it? It's an amazing epic. It's uh, directed by Mel Gibson. <laughs> Historically correct, isn't it? Everything, all great. <clears throat> right. Uh, how long you got? How much? How much do you hate Braveheart? I do not hate Braveheart. This is actually I, I got phoned up last week by the Telegraph because um, Braveheart's twenty five years old this year. <laughs> you should like, know oh, that should be noted. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, you know it's hit it's hit a sort of milestone. Um, the way I like to describe Braveheart is I call it a terrible, brilliant movie. Yeah. So I think it's a really good movie. I think it's a really good 
great bit of entertainment. It is also, at the same time, one of the worst historical films ever made. It's like <laughs> unbelievably inaccurate. Um, can I, before are, you go into it, can I just take you back to the first time you saw it? Because you, yeah, you, was a, yeah. you knew your history then, right? I, I, I was, so it came out in what, um, 95? So uh, I would have been 13, 14 probably when I first saw it. I remember seeing it probably when I was a student as well. Right, so there we go. Let's go I, take that point. Like, was you watching it going... This is bullshit. <laughs> this is all bullshit. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, okay, so here's one of the things I need to, to gloss here actually quite quickly because um, I work as a historical advisor on TV dramas and movies and obviously on Horrible Histories too. So I, I'm in this sort of line of work professionally. Mm-hmm. And I also teach this stuff at um, a couple of universities. And my line is actually quite different from most other historians. I don't think historical movies need to be accurate. I don't think it's their job. I think historical movies, their job is to be entertaining, to be a good movie. Did you enjoy it? Yes, no. That's all that matters. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think that is because, A, it's impossible to be historically accurate. It cannot be done. It literally cannot be done. B, entertainment is there to entertain us. That's what it's for. And, you know, Shakespeare's inaccurate. Are you going to go back and make him rewrite Macbeth? No, you're not, are you? So that's fine. C, I think actually... Any drama, any... Actually, i tell you what, more and more, it's computer games, actually. Video games are increasingly how people are engaging with history. Yes, for sure. Um, you know, games like Call of Duty, and obviously you've got Assassin's Creed and those kind of massive yeah. um, games where you explore worlds uh, and the research that goes into them. More and more, it, it used to be movies and TV dramas, and more and more, actually, it's video games. But from my point of view, the thing that matters most is that people are inspired and and are excited and want to know more. And we know from Wikipedia data, because they release it every year, we know from Wikipedia data that um, a couple of years ago, Wikipedia announced that they'd had 100 million hits to their website related to pages that were basically, you know, the stories of major TV dramas and movies that had come out that year. Yes. So like The Crown, yes. um, other big shows that had come out that year on Netflix and on the BBC, they'd had millions of hits to those particular pages because people wanted to know, is that true? I've just watched it. I've enjoyed it. I want to know more. And from my point of view as a public historian, I want to know more is the best sound you can hear. That's someone saying... I'm ready to hear more. What do you got? And that's when I turn up and go, okay, I've got podcasts, I've got books, I've got movies, what do you need? Mm. And Braveheart is an absolute load of bullshit. Of course it is. It's <laughs> totally wrong at every single point. What, it's hilariously wrong. What's but... the worst part of it? <laughs> well, I mean, where do you start? Well, well um, like, he, did he, he existed, right? He, William Wallace was yeah, a real... Yeah, but... okay, so, so yes, William Wallace existed, um, but he was a very posh knight, so he wasn't the sort of man of the people. Um, they didn't have kilts back then. Um, his, he, he, if I remember rightly, he shags the Queen of France, I think. Yeah, yeah. She would have, she would have been about seven years old at the time. <laughs> um, so that's deeply inappropriate. <laughs> really wrong. Um, there's a sort of scene where the Irish and the Scots, I think, uh, shake hands on the battlefield. Yep. That never happened. Um, William Wallace was the enemy of Robert the Bruce, not his friend. Uh, they were sort of rivals. Um, there's stuff about uh, Edward Longshanks. Uh, there's stuff about his son, Edward II. That's not true at all. Um, so they just made it all up. The wrong language. Yeah, they've just made it all up. They've just made, you know, and the thing is, is that people often say, oh, that movie got it wrong. And they didn't get it wrong. They choose not to get it right. And that's different. 
Mm. Major movie producers, when they make a historical movie, it's not like they can't be asked to read a book. They know what the story is because they'll have a historian come tell them. They just don't want that story. It's not as fun. Well, they don't like and, it. And, and so much is riding on a on a on a film of yeah. that magnitude that, that obviously the, the ability to earn the or, or to re- generate income from its release is going to circum so, so supersede the yeah the history. But yeah. all right, let yeah. me quick, quick one more question. Did they did they ever go unite us, unite the clans? Did that ever happen? <laughs> no, and he never shouted freedom either. Come on. Uh, and he didn't have blue um, face paint. What? That's, um, that's something the ancient Picts had done about a thousand years beforehand. So that's not true either. Let's take in the best um, bits of all of it. And then making <laughs> it into like a super superhuman movie kind of thing. I'm really sorry. Yeah, no, it's um, it's a good movie. It's fun. It's enjoyable. I liked it. Mm. But um, no, it's it's nonsense. There are some historical movies that are better than others and, and you know, try and do their absolute best. Uh, and more and more these days historical movies do work with historical consultants so um my friend hannah dr hannah Gregg at the university of york she's brilliant she was the advisor on the favorite which won an oscar um and she's also been advisor on poldark on the bbc and on uh, various jane jane austen adaptations you know so she's she's really good at that and she works often with the same teams and they they really like getting stuff right so there are definitely productions out there movies uh, video games uh, I mean Assassin's Creed they have historians who usually help them out and so those games are often really good really you know sometimes sometimes they're a bit you know they're games so they're you know they're they're playing a bit fast and loose but they do work with expert historians and uh, they also spend a huge amount of money on reconstructing what cities used to look like and so sometimes modern historians are kind of going blimey the resources you've got can I come and borrow that you know yeah, like they've reconstructed ancient Athens or whatever and there are classicists going, this is an amazing teaching resource. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's amazing, actually, to... I think, I mean, if I remember rightly, I'm not 100% sure this is true, but when Notre Dame burned down, you know, I think one of the first places the French government went to were the producers of Assassin's Creed, because I think they'd scanned it. Yeah. I think, they'd, I think they'd kind of done an amazing 3D rendering of it, and they were like, okay, what do you got? Because we've got to rebuild this. So there's a sort of... Um, there's a kind of reverse going on now where video games used to be, you know, a stupid entertainment for, for, you know, immature young men or whatever. I think that was the kind of the cliche. Back in the day, now, yeah. Now, you know, video games are for everyone. They're for people in their 40s and 50s. They're for men and women, boys and girls, absolutely everyone. But also, video games are being used by historians. There are expert historians who teach how video games are used um, a friend of mine, Holly Nelson, she's a specialist on the history of, of video games, uh, and she's doing a PhD right now on the history of board games as well. She joins the two up, so um, it's really fun to me when people kind of say, "Oh, you must hate Braveheart," and I go, "No, not at all," because that's a movie that inspired millions of people to find out more. Yes, it's erroneous. Yes, it's misleading. But we live in an era now where, thanks to Twitter, thanks to websites, thanks to blogging, thanks to Facebook, thanks to the radio, podcast, everything. I can talk to you about what's wrong with that movie. So you can enjoy that movie as a movie. You can then listen to me or any other historian. You can get the sort of the facts. And then you can go, oh, cool. All right. I get the best of both worlds. I get to enjoy the piece of entertainment. And then I get to go away and find what's real and what isn't real about it. So I see that as the perfect 
outcome really yeah and i think that's come about because of the the era we live in now where being a historian online means i'm so much more accessible to people they can ask me stuff and i can recommend other experts and i can send them blogs and, and articles and podcasts so it means that actually maybe in 1995 when that film came out there weren't many places to go to go and find the right stuff. You had to go to a library and get an actual book out, and that's a lot of work. But now we live in an age where absolutely everything's online and it's free. So I don't see a problem. For me, a historical movie, if it's inaccurate, I see that as an opportunity to start a conversation. A gateway. Yeah, yeah, it's a gateway drug. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, um, all right, so yeah, tell us about your book, Dead, uh, Dead, Dead Famous, about uh, yeah. charting the celebrity through the, through the ages. It is, is um, yeah, so it just came out in March. It came out a week before lockdown, so that's been weird, uh, trying to promote a book while the entire country stops. <laughs> um, it's, a funny hist- it's a funny history book. Um, it's very carefully researched. It took me four years to research and write it, so I started in 2016. Um, and it is basically about the history of celebrity which we think of as a modern thing we tend to think celebrity is 20th century invention and it isn't it starts in the 1700s so it's 300 years old and i also look at um different types of reputation besides celebrity so uh, we we often say that fame and celebrity are the same thing but they're not they used to be different uh, the romans and greeks had fame but they didn't have celebrity so i look a bit at um, the romans the greeks medieval ideas as well but mostly i'm looking at famous people celebrities from the 1700s 1800s and i stop in 1950 because you know the stuff after that you know elvis and marilyn and you know all of the classic arnold schwarzenegger and all that well, and the, so 1950 is my cutoff the number of celebrities just goes grows exponentially from that point anyway yeah. doesn't it so how would yeah, you it does i mean it'd be yeah, another yeah, eight books from the 15. 15- yeah, yeah, absolutely. I could do a kind of a book a decade. But um, who's, who's your favourite yeah. celebrity that you've you've written about then in your book? What who's there are? I mean, there are 125 in the book, including Clara the Rhino, who was a um, two-ton celebrity in the 1740s. She toured Europe as a rock star rhino. People were obsessed with her. Uh, amazing story. But the story that I love telling, my favourite person in the book, he's the first person we meet in the book, uh, is Edmund Keane. Um, and he is like he's I mean someone needs to do a movie because he's such an extraordinary guy he's the worst he's an absolute bellend he's like (laughs) he's such a dick but he's a genius and also I kind of just I kind of root for him like even though he's been dead 200 years I still part of my brain like give us a little taste of him then yeah yeah so okay let me let me paint a picture for you he was um, the greatest actor of the 19th century. So Shakespearean actor, still to this day, if you go to drama school, you'll probably learn about him. But he had an incredible story. So his childhood was really sad. His his dad had died by suicide. His mum, unfortunately, had to go into sex work to pay the bills. So he's raised by his aunt and his uncle. He's very small. He's like five foot four as a fully grown man. Um, and he's made to do like all the comedy roles, like all the kind of um, cartwheels and somersaults and all the slapstick stuff. And it gives him a chip on his shoulder because he really wants to be taken seriously. He wants to be the leading man doing the tragedies. But he's made to do the funny stuff. So he gets really, really grumpy. He becomes a raging alcoholic. He's an absolute screw-up. And his life is, you know, chaos. He gets married. 
his wife's called Mary. She's an actress too. At one point, he makes her walk 180 miles while seven months pregnant to get to his next gig in Swansea from Birmingham. He, oh, they literally gosh. walk from Birmingham to Swansea in the summer heat, and he doesn't have any money for a cart or for hotels or for food. So they're just sleeping in ditches. She's seven months pregnant. That's the kind of life they lead. Uh, and his life is like this for five more years. Five years of literally just like starving to death sometimes. Like people literally having to give him like handouts to stop his family dying. Um, and then in 1814, he has a breakthrough and he goes from being an absolute nobody to being the most famous man in the country in a space of a week. It's incredible. 1814, gets on stage in London and he's brilliant. He's just he's just brilliant. He's better than everyone else on the stage. And there are two journalists in the audience, and they write about how great he is in the newspapers the next day. And by the next week, everyone is desperate to see him. And within a week, he's really, really famous. Within a month, he's a superstar. But he's still a raging alcoholic. So this is what I love about him. Is he's, he's this incredible, toxic personality who just screws up everything he like ruins his friendships he's an absolute asshole to work with he fires anyone in the play who's better than him taller than him or better looking than him which is like everyone <laughs> um he has a pet lion uh, he walks around with a pet lion um he's sleeping with, uh, with with women all the time he's cheating on his wife all the time he builds in special kind of shag windows into his plays so he can come off stage midway through the play and have sex with a prostitute in the dressing room and go back out and do his speech um <sighs> He cheats on his wife with his uh, best friend's wife called um, called Charlotte Cox, uh, and the best friend finds out and tries to shoot him. Uh, luckily, someone grabs the gun out of his hand, uh, but it's like this huge scandal in in the press. Their love letters are found, and the love letters get um, printed in the newspapers. So it's a bit like someone like getting hold of your sex and publishing your sex yeah. you know all over the internet so he runs but not away mine to like brad pitts or someone well, yeah exactly well maybe yours as well Flat, I, don't know. <laughs> I mean i'm sure there are people out there who are... <laughs> i'm 38 i don't do that anymore <laughs> so um he twice one of the reasons he's really important is he twice tours america and this is at a time 1814 when america is a really small market and it doesn't have many people living there and there's not much money to be made there so you don't go to america also it takes a minimum of six weeks to sail to america a minimum so going to America is at least 12 weeks at sea, plus then getting between the cities is a nightmare. But he goes out there and he makes a lot of money. And he goes back out again in 1825 for his second tour. But this is off the back of his sex scandal with Charlotte Cox. And the Americans are furious with him. They are outraged that, they, that he thinks that they are going to forgive him. And so he gets into Boston, a city where he's already pissed people off. Um, his first on his first tour because he's that kind of guy he just pisses people off everywhere he goes and 5,000 people storm the theatre and try and kill him oh my so god he, <laughs> so he's on stage and like the people of Boston smashing the doors race down the theatre and try and murder him and he has to run out the back door and he has to hide in a linen press in a house around the corner so uh, he betrays his best friend um, he tries to murder his own son cheats on his wife fires everyone in plays but what I love about him, though, is that he's kind of working class and he's an ordinary kid who's kind of come good. And so he's sort of aware of it and he can't speak Latin on Greek, but he's friends with all these posh people like Lord Byron and the Prince. Um, and he goes to dinner with them and he would stand up and he would give a speech in Latin and Greek, but he doesn't speak it. So he just make it up. And these people were sitting there going, what is he doing? <laughs> so, How did he meet his demise? This, 
Well, he just dies of alcoholism. He dies in his, like, 40s. He just drinks himself to death. It's really, really sad. Mm. But his life is extraordinary, and he... He was funny when he, you know, sometimes he was, he was like the stories that I love telling of him. Like he, one night he, he was in a pub. He used to go missing for weeks and they'd find him on the floor of a pub somewhere in, in Deptford or somewhere. Raging alcoholic. He'd be found up a tree. Uh, one night someone offered him a yacht and he bought a yacht in a pub and then forgot about it because he was so hungover. And the next day the bloke brought the yacht and he was like, what yacht? And he was like, this yacht, you've bought a yacht off me. <laughs> um, another time he tried to watch his own play. He was so drunk. He, the play would start without him and he came in and tried to watch his own play. Um, he's just this incredible character, but really important and a huge star and really, really influential. So he's sort of the kind of first person you meet in my book because he's mostly because of his overnight fame thing. Cause I start the book by talking about how do people become celebrities and, you know, and the idea of overnight success is an idea that we love to talk about, mm. but it's a bit of a myth really. But he does manage it. He's one of the very few people in history who really did have... He did go from, from nobody to somebody in the space of a few days. So Edmund Keane is just one hell of a character, and I hope someone makes a movie of him. But the book has got 125 celebs in there, and it's funny, it's surprising. Um, it will hopefully change your understanding of modern celebrity and also of history. You know, that's the, the whole point. So, um, yeah, Edmund Keane is, is well worth checking out. Beautiful. Um, that, that is actually quite sad as well because he, he you know, he's mm. he's upbringing and losing his father in that way would have had, and yeah. his mum having to do sex work would have got a massive emotional strain on him that would have 100%. formed in his formative years would have would have, would have created a character that would have behaved in the way that he did, and that yeah. uh, and what he talks about is making his wife seven month year seven month pregnant wife walk one hundred and eighty miles or whatever it was. Um, yeah, is. It's also the mark of someone desperate for their art and, and their, yeah. their skills to be recognised. And while it's abhorrent to make um, anybody walk 180 miles with you, even mm, a seven-month-year-old, yeah. apparently it's also sort of symptomatic of someone who is a genius as well. Um, yeah. that, that's fascinating. So that's the first one. There's another 124. <laughs> yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. All right. That's, that, that's fantastic, Greg. Um, if anyone wants to find you on Twitter, it's at Greg underscore Jenna. Jenna. That's yep. Greg with one G. And um, right. big Spurs fan as well. I try my best. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. Get in touch. I'm going to buy the book. Um, if you want to get the book, you can get. You can find it from your um, from your, your your Twitter page, right? Yeah, and it's. Uh, I mean, I read the audio book as well, and the audio book is people are really enjoying because it's um, it's quite funny and it's it's got a few extra sort of jokes in there that I was able to improvise. But yeah, it's available in hardback, ebook, and audio book. Um, and uh, and I've also got a, a, another book as well that I wrote a few years ago about the history of daily life, which is also funny. So that's the history of toilets and and food and clothes and all sorts of stuff like that. Brilliant, uh, fantastic! And uh, your the, the most current book got five out of five at Waterstones. I, I know you probably want don't want to blow your own trumpet, but I'm I'm going to five out of five. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's done. Really, I mean, people are really liking it. It's had lovely reviews in the newspapers, um, and and readers are giving it really really lovely reviews, which is you know the best thing in the world when people you know appreciate the work that's gone into you know as i said it took me four years to write this so it's nice seeing people kind of go yeah i'm enjoying it that makes it worthwhile brilliant thank you greg thank you so much for your time pleasure thanks for chatting speak soon
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.